hated to have seen what would have happened if we would have advertised it. <laughs> a little bit of a low crowd tonight. No, it's okay. Before we get started, uh, does anybody have a need, anything? Uh, we'll just signify with a raised hand if you're online, if you just want to put something in the comments. I think we all have something going on, big or small. There's always something that we can bring to the Lord. So we're going to join in prayer. Um, and just, you know, that's part of being a church, is that you come together and no matter what's going on in your life, that you know that there are people who are going to come alongside you and, and support you and believe with you and have faith with you. Sometimes we don't have faith for ourselves, right? But we can come along somebody else who can have faith for us and can get us back on track. So that's what we're going to do tonight. So dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for the word that you've, you, you've put in my heart that you want me to share. I pray for each person in this room and each person watching on Facebook tonight that you would meet them where they are. Whatever that might be, you know the needs, big, small, whatever it might be, you are not too big, not too small for any of it, and we believe that you're going to do incredible things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my phone is on 4% tonight, and usually I keep my time, so if I go long, it's not my fault. Um, before we get started, I heard two jokes that I wanted to share that I think would be good. Uh, before Boaz got married, what kind of a man was he? He was ruthless. Pretty good. Who was the best investor in the Bible? It was Noah, because he floated his assets while everybody else was liquidated. All right, I'm done. Anyway, um, those were free. Those were free. I didn't even start my timer yet, so that, that didn't even count. <laughs> All right, so Pastor Mike asked me to step in. He is uh, with his family on vacation, and it's much deserved. He does so much for our church, and it's great whenever we can see him be able to do something for, him, for himself and his family, especially after 30 years of pastoring this church, so many incredible things and stories that I've heard even before I got here. So it's awesome that he's able to, and I was honored not only to be able to serve him by filling the pulpit, but also be honored to be asked to come up because I know that it's not easy to share that space. You, you, it's hard to trust people sometimes. And so I believe that what I'm going to share today is really something God has put on my heart. Uh, it's something that um, I, I'm not typically a topical preacher in terms of I don't like to take a topic and just make my sermon around it. That's not how I was trained. I was trained to be an expository preacher, which means you take a scripture and you preach on that scripture. I like to let the Bible speak for itself, but I do believe that there are times whenever God kind of directs you, and it's still from scripture, but maybe you're looking at a few different places, and we believe in the full counsel of the word of God anyway. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, there's, I think this is a relevant topic because of some things that have been happening uh, in, our, in the Christian circles for sure, but also uh, I think it's relevant and it's timeless, uh, and you'll, you'll see why in just a little bit. So before I get started, my, my sermon tonight is called Modern Day Pharisees. Modern day Pharisees, and maybe you're not familiar with the term Pharisee, maybe you are. It's usually used as a derogatory term. How many of you have heard that as a derogatory term? It's usually used for people who just get in the way. They're stubborn. They uh, do not want to, uh, they get in the way of a move of God. Oh, those Pharisees over there. I saw a, a pastor on Twitter the other day who I, I knew had been asked to leave his church. And of course, everybody at that church, they were Pharisees because he was removed from the church. You know, it, we can call people that. Doesn't necessarily mean they are. But what does that mean? What is a Pharisee truly? Now, I grew up 
seeing it as a derogatory thing. And lately I've been hearing it in a couple regards. Uh, you might be familiar with some of the revival services that have been happening around. And it, it's incredible some of the stories that I've heard. God's really doing amazing things. Uh, started at Asbury University. And now it's spreading to all kinds of different churches and places. And, and I would say if God is truly moving, amen. And I, I believe that, that he is and that he can. Um, uh, there's people who are against it for whatever reason. I've heard many, many different reasons. And what gets brought up by those who are in favor of these is that those people must be Pharisees because here's a move of God. They equate it to Jesus coming and uh, then the Pharisees are getting in the way just like they did back whenever Jesus walked the earth. That's kind of the way that we see it. I've also seen it uh, being somebody who went to seminary and who studied and, and, and studies theology and likes to talk about theology, often uh, seminary gets replaced with cemetery because they say that's just dead religion. It's just head knowledge, which in many cases I would agree with that. I remember whenever I was a chaplain, I enjoyed uh, talking to some of the chaplains who were from a different uh, flavor of Christianity than me, even some that were from a completely different faith. Because I was born in this. I grew up in the AG circles. That's all I knew up until I was probably, well, really until I went into seminary, went to the, the chaplain uh, program, and I began to realize, oh, there's some other different perspectives to look at. And I learned a lot. Doesn't mean I agreed with all of it, but I learned a lot. I remember talking to one of my colleagues who was Anglican, and I didn't really know what Anglican meant. And I learned a lot, you know, just from their, their beliefs and some of their views. Um, and I remember having a conversation. Now, the conversation centered around the modes of baptism, which simply just means, do you believe in baptism by immersion? Do you believe in sprinkling? Whatever it might be. And I wouldn't say we were debating, but we were having a, a colorful conversation, just kind of going back and forth. Well, what about this scripture? What about that scripture? And one of my other colleagues, who was from more of the circles that I'm from, said, you guys sound like a bunch of Pharisees. Because we're talking about the Bible, because we're talking about things that pertain to our, our faith and our, and our walk. And I, I really didn't understand that. But those are the ways that we understand the term Pharisee. But who were the Pharisees? Now, if you know me, if you know the way that I like to present things, I like to load you up with a whole lot of knowledge at the beginning. And then toward the end, we'll see how it all fits together. I still like the best description of my teaching was uh, Linda Studer who's recovering right now from a procedure, so she's not here with us tonight. Hopefully she's watching us online. The first time I talked to her, she said, you know, when you preach, it's kind of like you start here, and then you just go around and around and around, and you finally get to your point. And I said, I'll let you in on a little secret. That's kind of how it is for me too. So we'll just see where we're going to go tonight. But who were the Pharisees? Who were they? We're going to have to go way back into history, starting with Moses. Now, if you're familiar with Moses, Moses was the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt. He was the one that God chose, the, the, the first prophet who really helped to unify the nation of Israel, brought them out of Egypt, and where they became the nation of Israel. And from, from Moses through the kings... We see that Jewish history from Moses to Josiah is where we're going to bookmark it for a moment, is marked by a quest for national unity and religious identity. According to the Bible, Moses was chosen by God to lead the Israelites from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, where they established the first Israelite kingdom. Moses' successor, Joshua, helped the Israelites defeat their enemy and divided the land among the 12 tribes. Under leaders such as Samuel and Saul, the kingdom became powerful and extended its influence. However, the kingdom was soon divided into two, Israel and Judah, due to jealousy and power struggles amongst the kings. Okay, so 
there is a very, very brief synopsis of the history of the Jewish people from Moses to Josiah. And what happened with Moses is that God gave him the Ten Commandments. He gave them what came to be known as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And that word Torah translated really means the teachings or the instructions. The teachings or the instructions of God. Now, throughout Jewish history, that changed shape a little bit. And Israel wanted a king, so God granted them a king, and that did not go well for them. And through that time, they began to forsake their first love, who was Yahweh, who was God, and they began to worship idols. They began to carry on the pagan practices that they had found in Egypt and the other Canaanite gods. And God, to to point them in the right direction, allowed them to go into exile, allowed them to be punished, if you will, uh, so that they would see that they couldn't survive without him. And part of that uh, process was that they, at one point, Scripture shows us that they actually forgot the law at all. They still worshipped in the temple, but the temple was filled with pagan practices. It was filled with all kinds of things that were not of God. They had completely forgotten what God had given to Moses. Now, toward the end of the 8th century, Isaiah the prophet began preaching a message of hope and renewal to the people of both northern and southern kingdoms. That was the divided kingdoms. During this period, a number of strong rulers, such as Hezekiah and Josiah, emerged and brought back a sense of unity and faith to the people. Josiah is credited with uh, instituting far-reaching reforms, including a centralized religious system, a revision of the laws, and an establishment of the great temple in Jerusalem. By the time of Josiah's death in 609 BC, the Israelites had experienced a period of renewal, faith, and unity, laying the foundation for a persistent Jewish identity that endured for centuries after. And that is such a a powerful statement because the Jewish culture did persist through so many things. They were morphed into kingdoms that were known for taking over the identity of their captors. Yet, they didn't. Yet Israel remained and the religion stayed intact. It changed shape. But here, Josiah, in 622 BC, he calls for a renovation of the temple. He says, we need to renovate the temple because we've allowed it to fall apart. We've allowed it to be something that God never wanted it to be. And in the process, they found stuffed away the book of the law, which tells us that up to that point, it had been forgotten. It had been lost, certainly not observed. They didn't even know what it was. And this was most probably the book of Deuteronomy, which was Moses, what he gave to the Israelites toward the end of his life. It it literally means in the Greek, law again, because he was saying, this is what we saw now that the new generation's coming in. Here's the law again. This is probably what Josiah's men found in the temple. And he he read it and he saw, we're not doing this right. We're not, we've got it all wrong. And the proper study of the book revealed that the traditional practice of the cult of Yahweh and Judah was wrong. The way they were practicing Judaism, the way that it had evolved, the what it had become was not what God had intended at all. King Josiah had idols of Baal destroyed and all pagan practices within the temple removed and burned. And he also marched northward, destroying stone altars and killing priests of other gods. This marked the formation of the biblical tradition. Now somewhere between Moses and Josiah, the religion of Judaism had not just lost its priority, but it had been forgotten altogether. And what was being practiced was nothing more than an adoption of pagan practices that took place in the temple of Yahweh, but they were not worship to Yahweh. 
Josiah then began to enforce this teaching as law. He saw that what they had done needed to stop and it could not happen again. He foresaw something coming. He foresaw that if they did not get it together, then what God was doing through the exiles was going to literally destroy their nation. So he called for a legal enforcement of the law. That's very important as we move forward. Now, Jewish history from Josiah to Ezra consists of a period of significant reform, destruction, exile, and rebuilding. Josiah was the last great Jewish king. He foresaw a coming doom. He was too late. The people didn't respond to what he was trying to do, even though he tried to enforce it legally. And before the destruction of the first temple in 586 BC by the Babylonians, which sparked a period of exiles for the Jews to Babylon, After decades in exile, the Persians, who allowed the Jews to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, this period of rebuilding was led by Nehemiah, who built the wall, and Ezra, who built the temple, who was also led by the Jews to reestablish their law and religious life, which was recorded in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So what am I saying? They were, after Josiah, he saw that there was something coming, they needed to get it together, they didn't. So they were exiled. The Babylonians came in, took them captive, and and forced them into exile. Many of them had to go uh, away from their home. Some stayed, but many many left. That's how we know about Daniel and and some of the other wise men that we, we read about, the other prophets. And in the process... They eventually, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and Cyrus was moved upon by God to have them go back. And part of that initiative to go back was that Nehemiah was was, uh, recruited to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and Ezra was was called to rebuild the temple. Now, Ezra um, was a leader of the Jewish people who spearheaded the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and the restoration of Jewish worship in in the Persian period. He worked to promote the observance of Jewish law and emphasize the importance of adherence to the religious principles. The second temple, remember the first temple was destroyed right around uh, Josiah's death. The second temple is now being built. Saw a period of increased political and religious autonomy for the Jewish people. Including a new religious organization formed from the coalescence of various philosophical schools. This period saw the formation of the tenets of modern Judaism by the great sage uh, Halilil following the Roman conquest of Jerusalem to the period of the Pharisees. First century saw the strengthening of religious authority with the rise of the oral body of laws in addition to the written laws of Moses. During this time, scholars preserved and articulated the Jewish tradition and further developed the key principles of Jewish theology, such as the Shema Yisrael and the concepts of the, wor- of the world to come after life and death. Now, what am I saying? There's a lot of content there. What I'm saying is this. They came back to Israel. They came back to Jerusalem. The temple was built. Ezra had the, uh, had the, uh, the goal to reestablish the religious system and the people said, Josiah had the right idea, but we've got to do it right. We cannot allow people to, to break the law again because in breaking the law, that's what led to exile. That was their interpretation of what had happened. Because we have broken the law, God is punishing us, and we need to make sure that we don't do it again. So what they did is they created rules around the rules. What God had given was the Ten Commandments. He gave the Ten Sayings, the Decalogue, 
They weren't even called commandments. That was actually added later. They were the ten sayings. These are the things that tell us what God is like and what he expects from us. That's what he gave to Moses. Now, throughout uh, the rest of the first five books of the Bible, we see how they applied those laws, how they applied those teachings. Ezra wanted to make sure that the people didn't fall into sin again. So they said, not only are we going to have these ten rules, we're going to put rules around the rules. And then the next generation came along and they said, well, we really want to make sure that we don't break these. And we've been observing the rules that Ezra put in place. So now we're going to put rules around the rules around the rules. Then the next generation came in and said, well, that's all fine and good, but we want to really make sure that they don't break the rules. So we're going to put rules around the rules, around the rules, around the rules, and generation after generation around generation, countless layers, we don't even know how many layers of rules were placed around what God had originally given. These were intended to keep people from breaking the the law of God again. Now, the idea was in Psalms, we see that a a person doesn't doesn't, uh, sit where he doesn't stand, and he doesn't stand where he doesn't walk. So the idea is if we don't even get close to it, then we'll never break it. And if we keep making more rules for people, then they'll never break what's actually important. And layer upon layer upon layer... Finally, we reach a group called the Pharisees. They were a final layer of this. They added more layers to this. During this time, starting with Ezra, the Jewish people decided to get serious about following the commandments of God. And why wouldn't they? They'd been suffering in exile and had been given the opportunity to return to their land, rebuild the temple, and serve the Lord again. Now, during the time between 250 and 100 B.C., so this is several hundred years after Ezra reestablished the temple. Many of the Jewish people who had been in exile, they no longer spoke Hebrew. They no longer read it. They no longer knew it. So a translation of the Bible was done called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And there's a lot to be said about that that we won't go into tonight. But one thing of note is that a particular word was translated a particular way, and it was actually... uh, an interesting thing that they would translate it this way because it didn't fit the Hebrew word. Remember the Hebrew word Torah meant teaching or instruction. They used in the Greek Septuagint the Greek word nomos, which actually means law. Law. Now if you had a word in Hebrew that meant teaching or instruction, and then over here you have a Greek word that means law, that's not really the same idea. And if you do any kind of translation work, the point is to get the idea of the word into the next language. I would say they missed the mark. But what I also know is that two significant historical uh, events took place between the use of the word in Hebrew and the translation in the Septuagint. That was King Josiah, his reform, and the fences that Ezra initiated. What was established as teaching, what was established as principles, now, over years and years and years of misapplication, at one point not even knowing that it existed, and then trying to correct what they had done, that idea of teaching, of God teaching them what he was like and what they were supposed to be like, now became a legal system that we were supposed to live by in order to earn something from God, which was never what God intended in the first place. 
That's what it evolved into, and we see that from the use of nomos in the Septuagint. It's no longer teaching. It's no longer principles. It's something to live by. And it didn't just include those ten. It now included the fences and the fences upon the fences and the fences upon the fences. All those layers were now considered the laws, the commandments. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Now, um, setting the, we're setting the stage for Jesus now. For Jesus' day, this strict legal system. Jesus came toe-to-toe with these Pharisees on a daily basis. Okay, This was commonplace for them to see. Uh, the, the strict legal system that is layers upon layers deep, the tradition of the elders, as we'll talk about it a little bit more, the misapplication of the Torah in the first place. This is who the Pharisees were. They were keepers of the oral tradition. The oral tradition is different from the written tradition because it was passed down. You'll hear Jesus say, and we'll read it a little bit, you'll hear Jesus say times, you've seen it written, or it is written, and then other times he'll say, you've seen it, or you've heard it said. If he says, you've heard it said, he's actually talking about the oral tradition. Those layers, those fences, those rules around the rules that were created as opposed to what God had placed in the first place. Now, who were the Pharisees? We just talked about that. They were the keepers of the oral tradition. Now, they weren't bad guys. They weren't necessarily these evildoers that we make them out to be. No, their, their heart was in the right place at one point. Maybe not the Pharisees, but those who originated. Ezra, we praise Ezra because we, we, we see what he was trying to do. Let's make sure that we don't break the, the law, that we don't break the heart of God really is what he was trying to do. We do that today. You know, if, if I have a gambling addiction, I'm not going to go anywhere near a casino, right? Not because I can't, but because I shouldn't. Whatever it might be, whatever the vices that we're talking about, we shouldn't be around those things. We put rules around the rules. They weren't necessarily bad, but what was it about them that Jesus rebuked? Now, there were some notable Pharisees, the first one being Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he was the one that came to Jesus in John 3, and Jesus said, if you want to come to me, you have to be born again. He didn't get it at all. I've heard people say he was Nick at night because he wanted to slip in at night so no one saw him. So Nicodemus was one. Paul was another one. In fact, he wasn't just a Pharisee. He said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the top echelon of the order. I was just the, the, the poster child. We see in Acts 23, him. Now, this is one that might throw you off just a little bit. There is scholarly evidence, not, a, not all scholars believe it, but there is some scholarly evidence, and we'll talk about it a little bit, that there was one Pharisee that you'd never expect. Possibly, I'm not saying that it was, possibly Jesus. There's some speculation that Jesus was a Pharisee because in Matthew 26, 25, Mark 9 uh, and 11, 14, John 1, uh, John 3, all of these places, Jesus is referred to as rabbi. And in fact, Nicodemus refers to him as rabbi. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And there is historic evidence to suggest that only Pharisees were referred to by rabbis and certainly only referred to by another rabbi. So I'm not standing by that. I'm not saying that he was, but it is possible based on the evidence that we have in scripture that Jesus himself was a Pharisee. Well, that kind of takes everything that we have to say out of the water a little bit, right? Maybe what we understand about Pharisees isn't quite accurate. So let's move forward. The essence of what the Pharisees were was not altogether wrong. They were birthed out of Ezra's desire. The observation of the law was God's idea, not the Pharisees. 
There's nothing wrong with them observing it and wanting to keep it. So then what was the sin of the Pharisees? The first thing is this. They added to the law. The problem was they didn't just create systems of accountability. They equated their systems with the very law that they intended to protect. So as we know, things that get established years ago, over time they evolve and they become something very different than what they were meant to be. Take our Constitution, for example. You know, our Constitution used to be a very thin document. Now, there are so many articles and things out there that were supposed to be, you know, three branches. Now you have so many offshoots. Actually, uh, these other agencies that actually uh, legislate and they're not supposed to. You know, over 200 years of being in history, we've evolved and we've changed and not for the better. We are way far away from what was original. Originally, the idea was to create accountability. And they, I, I believe that they didn't equate that accountability with what they were trying to protect. But now, centuries upon centuries, generations upon generations later, the Pharisees have now equated their oral tradition with the written tradition. The thing they were trying to protect is now equated with the way they're trying to protect it. So we're supposed to keep all of it. Now here in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, we see a reference to the tradition of the elders. Starting in verses 1 through 9. When the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands and they eat bread. Or when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves also break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And the one who speaks evil of your father and mother is the one who should be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah uh, prophesy by saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, as this passage unfolds step by step, first, there's a challenge by the teachers and a response from Jesus. Now, I want to break this down just a little bit. What's happening here? The Pharisees are coming up and they're saying, why why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? Ceremonial cleanliness. This was part of the tradition of the elders. And Jesus says, well, why don't you honor your mother and father? What does that mean? He's saying, Part of the tradition was that if I, as a Pharisee, wanted to, if, if I could help my parents, but I then took that money and, and dedicated it to God, that I couldn't help them anymore. And he was saying, that's part of your tradition, but the commandments to honor your mother and father, and your tradition over here is in conflict with that, and you're supporting your tradition over what God has asked you to do. That's what he's saying here. Moving on. Verses 10 through 11, after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what enters your mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. Now, what was their accusation? Why don't they wash their hands? They're putting unclean things into their mouth. And Jesus says very clearly, hear and understand. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the statement? But he answered them and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant will be uprooted. It's very important. We'll get back to that in a moment. 
Leave them alone. They are blind guides of blind people. And if a person who is blind guides another who is blind, they will both fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Jesus said, are you also still lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these things defile the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, acts of adultery, other immoral sexual acts, thefts, false testimonies, and slanderous statements. These are the things that defile the person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the person. What's he challenging? He's saying they're so focused on their tradition of washing their hands. God never asked them to do that. That's what they came up with. And they're so focused on keeping their hands clean that they don't know that their hearts are dirty. Look what's coming out of their mouth. Comes out of the mouth, reveals the content of the hearts. Jesus saying, I don't really care if you wash your hands or not. Watch what comes out of your mouth. Watch what's in your heart. God never asked them to do the things that the Pharisees were were now equating. And not only were they equating their their tradition to, to what God had commanded, but they've actually allowed it to supersede it because they're not doing what he has commanded and enforcing what he hasn't. Now the disciples, they asked about him offending the Pharisees. Jesus answered them with a parable. What goes into the mouth, this is speaking of dietary laws, tradition of the elders. What comes out of the mouth, the contents of the heart, the Torah of God. The tradition of the elders always speaks to the external, while the Torah always speaks to the heart. That'll be important as we, as we dive in a little bit more. First, the accusation, the men who bring this accusation are from Jerusalem, meaning that they were the best trained and most highly respected teachers in the land. They also had a good deal of zeal for the, uh, to be this far away from home. They're not in Jerusalem. They're preaching, they're evangelizing. Their appearance here must have been a deputation or a mission of some kind. Whether the reason for their presence, we don't know, but they were, they were on a mission. Now they come, they find Jesus, they find something he's doing. He's breaking the tradition of the elders. They rebuke him and Jesus turns around and rebukes them right back. Now whenever I was a kid growing up, I never really understood why Jesus was breaking the law and why that was okay. As I've gotten older and I've studied it, I realized he wasn't. He was breaking the tradition. He was breaking the things that had been set in place, not the law, not what God had given. He was breaking the things that had been added to God's commands. It's important. There are two categories discussed here, the commands of God and the tradition of elders. What are the traditions of elders? Okay, we talked about this, the fences that went around. Let's talk a little bit about how they came up with these fences. The religious leaders developed a religious system with 613 unique laws, commandments, or what are often called in in Judaism, the mitzvahs. They chose the number 316. It was a very intricate process, okay? They chose the number 613 because that was how many separate letters were in the text containing the Ten Commandments. Well, that seems like a good idea. Then they found 613 commandments in the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament. They divided the list into affirmative commands, do this, and negative commands, do this. There were 248 affirmative commands, one for each part of the body, as they understood it. There were were 365 negative commandments, one for each day of the year. 
They further divided the commandments into into binding commandments and non-binding commandments. And the religious groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, all of these, they spent their days debating over whether those divisions and rankings and commands were, uh, which division they should follow. So now the Pharisees encounter a revolutionary named Jesus. Now regardless of whether he was a Pharisee or not, he certainly rebelled against the tradition. Jesus had challenged the Pharisees before. And they had enough of his troublemaking. In Matthew 22, they devise a plan to humiliate him right in front of the crowd. So they take these 613 commandments, those commandments that the Jewish people follow, that they now equated with the law. They believed that God had given all of this and that all of it was equal. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the things that protected you from ever breaking the Ten Commandments. And they had a plan to fool Jesus. They got a lawyer involved to go and ask Jesus a question. In Matthew 22, he goes up to Jesus and he says, which of the 613 commandments, which one's the greatest? Now, that's a tough question. Could you answer that without cheating and seeing what Jesus said? Could you have answered that? No, if, if they're all equal, if they're all the same, then they're all. But they're saying, which one? Now, Jesus couldn't say all of them because then he wouldn't necessarily seem like he was thinking it through. And if he said one of them, then kind of throw it off. But he does what only Jesus could do. He says, the greatest are this. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the others like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Jesus was not abolishing the law or minimizing its importance. Instead, he captured the original heart in two brief statements. Love God, love others. It's as though Jesus had pushed past the tradition and had now recaptured what the law was in the first place, what the Torah was in the first place. Now, only the Pharisees, uh, not only had the Pharisees added to the law, but they had made their tradition more important than what God had established and in the process had violated the very teaching that they had set out to protect. They missed it. They completely misunderstood what the law was about. It wasn't about the external. It was about the internal. They were looking at all the things on the outside, thinking we're to protect them on the inside, but what did Jesus say? You're like whitewashed tombs, meaning you look real good on the outside, but on the inside you're dead. That's what you are. Because you think that by doing all the external stuff, that that's all that matters. But no, it starts in here. And really, I don't care what it looks like on the outside, because this is what I'm going to judge. So that was the first thing. They added to the law. The second is this. They believed that they could earn their salvation. In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, prided themselves in their strict avoidance of obvious sin. Things on the external. But in spite of their devotion to outward perfection, they refused to look inside themselves and acknowledge their inner corruption. Jesus knew they were deliberately concealing and hiding their sins behind a legalistic facade of righteousness and warned them against trusting in their own self-righteousness. He knew that only repentance and faith in him would provide a remedy for our condition of sin. So here in Matthew Chapter 23, verses 25 through 28 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside 
Uh, they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup of, and of the dish, and the outside will also become clean. Woe to you, Pharisee, Pharisees and, and scribes. You are like whitewashed tombs, like I said earlier, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside are still full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear, appear righteousness to people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and began dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors? That was a big no-no. We don't hang out with the people who are sinful. But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now go and learn what this means. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. For I did not come to call, righteous, call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the known sinners, those who were obviously sinners, they weren't full of self-righteous pride. The tax collectors weren't walking around saying, oh, we're good with God because we behave properly. They knew they weren't. They knew what, they knew what their, uh, their, their punishment was going to be. They weren't deliberately concealing their hidden sins behind a legalistic facade of righteousness. Jesus was keenly ironic when he said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. He knew that the Pharisees weren't righteous. They weren't righteous, but their pretense of righteousness kept them from accepting the only remedy of their condition, repentance and faith in him. The obvious sins of, or public sins made them more likely to repent and look to Jesus for the answers they needed. You know, I hear, uh, so I, I didn't grow up, well, I, I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but I'm not originally from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which, as most of us know, is the Bible Belt. It is hard to find anybody, it's getting easier, sadly, but it's hard to find anybody in the Bible Belt who doesn't go to church, who doesn't live the Christian life. There are other places in the country where God is doing incredible things because there is no self-righteousness that we often see here. Because I was born in church, I know what the Bible says, I know how to live, I know how to put on the show so that you don't think that there's something really going on in my life. If you go up to places like Portland or Seattle or uh, places in, in, in Arizona, Scottsdale, Arizona, places like that, it is obvious that they, uh, they're not even trying to hide it. And you know what? There are so many incredible things happening there because when those people give their life to Christ, it is obvious. It is obvious. I love to hear about Muslims in the Middle East who are giving their life to Christ because of this. You don't just act like you're a Christian in a Muslim nation. Because for one, you may actually be killed. But more importantly often to them, if you get baptized, your family has to have a funeral for you. And you are dead to them completely because you have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when any of us were baptized in the room, did you encounter that? No, we didn't. We have it very easy here. None of us really know what the cost is for the, for the faith that others face in other countries. But here, we often, it's easy to get into this self-righteousness of if I just act a certain way, then everything's good. Now, we're all sinners, both inwardly and outwardly. Although we may not be notorious public sinners, we all share a fallen nature and are often controlled by the flesh, the sin principle within, within us, as we see in Romans 8. Jesus' stern warning to the hypocritical Pharisees makes it clear that sin will ignore and deny 
is no less serious in its effect than the sin that is public. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is having right standing with God. It's having, uh, it's having him, uh, it's having him, it's, it's what we have from him. It, I'm sorry, I'm going to back up and try that again. It's having him for us and not against us. That's what it means to be righteous. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like ones who are unclean, and all of us and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Now, we've talked about that before. Without the seed which can produce life, we are either, it's easier for us to receive him, or we, we, so we either receive it from him, or we spend our lives trying to earn it. This is the picture of Adam attempting to hide from God, to cover his nakedness with clothes that he had sewn together himself. It doesn't work. Only God can cover us. The Pharisees have placed their hope in their own ability to keep the law. They believed that this, that this placed them in right standing with God, but Jesus said that they looked good on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. So four things that marked a Pharisee in this regard. Number one, they trusted in themselves for their righteousness. Number two, they did everything, they do everything to be noticed by others and love to have the outward signs of holiness. Number three, they loved being honored and elevated above others. Number four, they feel compelled to justify themselves to men to keep up their appearances. And number, uh, well, there's number four. So Jesus said to the Pharisees, this is Luke chapter 16, verses 15. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. They believe that their observance of the law, this is the third sin of the Pharisees, they believe that their observance of the law made them better than others. Luke chapter 18, verses 11, the Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, crooked adulterers, and even like this tax collector. The law was equated with godliness. Therefore, if someone observed the law, they must be godly right? Given their understanding. The exclusive attitude of the Pharisees, they, they took a very exclusive attitude towards their beliefs and their adherence to the laws of the Torah. They believed strongly in their own interpretation of the law and oral law and held a higher regard for the interpretation than any of the others. They also held a strong sense of superiority of the other sects or individuals who did not adhere to their interpretation. This exclusive attitude had a lasting effect on the religious landscape of the time, creating a deep divide between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is another group. It also led to a great deal of hostility between the Pharisees and other Jewish individuals who saw their views as extreme and oppressive. The exclusive attitude also gave rise to a particular belief among some religions, uh, religious Jews that faith, rather than adherence to the law, was the only legitimate foundation for religious life. This belief led to the decline of the rabbinic authority as the main religious authority and contributed to the development of Christianity and its acceptance by the Gentiles and non-Jews. So what's the saying? The, the people didn't like the Pharisees because they made it harder, because they added pressure to them, because they put more on them. The Jewish people were not fans of the Pharisees because they knew in their heart it wasn't like that. 
God wasn't expecting them to check all the boxes and get it all right. There was something that was being missed, and it was actually the Pharisees, uh, um, the fact that they believed that they were better that caused so many people to leave the Jewish faith in the first place because the, they wanted something different. The Jewish people wanted something different than what the Pharisees were providing. It led to the creation of Christianity, and not so much the creation, but the adoption of it. Ultimately, this exclusive attitude of the Pharisees had wide-reaching implications both for the Jewish community of the Second Temple period and for the Western religion as a whole. Now, the exclusivity of the Pharisees actually led to the rapid spread of Christianity. People were so tired of the burden that had been placed on them through the law. When Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, he being truthful... He was being truthful, but these traditions that the Pharisees were not helping people. When Jesus said that everything that my father did not plant will be uprooted, what he's talking about is all this extra stuff, all this extra baggage that they put on. So let's summarize. Jesus did not rebuke the Pharisees because they sought after the truth. I want to make that clear tonight. Jesus was not upset with them because they were trying to get it right. That's not why he rebuked them. Paul, he was a Pharisee before his conversion. He didn't lose any of his zeal for the truth than he had before his conversion. Paul wasn't hopping from revival to revival trying to get another download. and he was, he was sticking to the revelation that had been given to him. He had zeal for the truth. He didn't lose that. Christianity at its onset is about taking the burden off people and allowing them to come to God freely. We actually see the Pharisees resurface in the church in Galatia, not by name but in their approach to the faith. Paul calls them the Judaizers. When the Jewish Christians are requiring that Gentile Christians be circumcised, here in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 26, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now this is important because in the Greek, when Paul says the word tutor, he uses the word pedagogos, which is the Greek word that means teaching or instruction it had the connotation of a person who who walked a, a, a rich person's child to school but instruction and in, in teaching is very uh, it's a good interpretation well what does that sound like that sounds like the Torah from the Hebrew why did the Septuagint translators not use that because by the time they had translated it, the Torah had become the law what Paul's saying here is let's retranslate let's redefine the law is the pedagogos, it's the teaching, it's the instruction. It's not a list of rules, it's not a list of, of things that we have to do. It's something that leads us to Christ, that points us to Christ. And also in Galatians, Paul defends his apostleship by explaining the message that he spoke to them was not from himself, but from God. And that it, and that he challenged anyone who would come to bring a different message than the one he preached. Even one as, as far as to say that they should uh, be accursed. Obviously, this addition of circumcision to the gospel fit the bill. So, we've talked a lot about the Pharisees, the history, what was going on in the past. Let's bring it home. How have we added to the gospel? How have we made the gospel harder? How have we added things to the gospel that were never intended to be there? Now, I'm going to read a, a short joke that I think is, is helpful for us to understand this. One, there was once a man uh, <clears throat> that saw a guy on a bridge about to jump. And he said, don't do it. 
He said, why not? Nobody loves me. And the man said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. The man said, are you a Christian or a Jew? I'm a Christian. Oh, me too. Are you a Protestant or a Catholic? Oh, I'm a Protestant. Me too. What, what franchise? Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. Oh, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said Northern Conservative Baptist. Well, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. Oh, me too. Southern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. The man said Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. And he said, you heretic, and pushed him off the bridge. But don't we do that? We've got, to, we've got to try to get it down so that we agree on everything. It's not going to happen. You know, there are 30,000 different denominations, Protestant denominations in the world today. Last time I checked, it might have changed. Now, some of these are important. Some of these are, are good, but others are not so important. I'm going to talk about two tonight. A lot of churches preach on end time stuff, and it's good. But did you know that if you were looking for a seminary, the, 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 the dividing line is often what people believe about end times? Why? Why is that what determines what we teach and what kind of school we are? Denominations have been split over what we believe about the end times. Another one would be uh, the translation that Bibles use, King James onlyism, as opposed to some of the more uh, contemporary versions. There's actually a historical principle that kind of speaks to both of those as to why they're not all that important um so the man who created or created what was called the textus receptus which was the greek manuscript that was used in the writing of the king james was a man by the name of um, er um wow the name slipped me i'm sorry look it up it's there um the man who did it he had this idea to translate into into the greek and he got through some of it, and his publisher started putting pressure on him. And he decided that he needed to hurry up. And so he called the Vatican, didn't call him, but he went to the Vatican and got commentaries on the book of Revelation. There's a couple of reasons that he did that. In this commentary, there was not an actual Greek translation, there were just notes, and he used that to piece it together. And he got to the end of it, there was a page missing. So he pulled out his Latin Vulgate and translated the last part of the Greek from the Latin into the Greek, his own translation, not from the original Greek at all. That book of Revelation, there's two reasons he did that. Number one, because he had to get it done really fast. Number two, because he didn't think that the book of Revelation belonged in there in the first place. And the reason being because the book of Revelation almost didn't make it into the canon because there wasn't a lot of historical evidence for it. Now, I believe it is the inspired word of God, but here's my, here's my question. Why do we put so much stake on a book that almost didn't make it when there's a rest of the book that teaches something that's so much more important? Here's my, here's my idea, okay? I don't know how things are going to end, and frankly, I don't care. Because the book of Revelation is not the revelation of end times. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ of past, present, and future. It's telling us that he's here all the time, no matter what time frame. And yes, we can, we can put things together. We can get an idea of what the end times are going to look like. But do we need to split churches over it? Do we need to define our, our seminaries by it? No, these are the things that we add to the gospel. These are the things that aren't important. Let's think about the thief on the cross for a moment. The thief on the cross hung by Jesus and 
he simply uttered these words. He said, remember me in your kingdom. That's it. He wasn't baptized. He wasn't, he didn't go through a catechism. He didn't go through a a growth track class. He didn't learn the 16 fundamental truths. He didn't learn any of that. And I heard somebody say it the other day. I thought it was a great way to put it. He said, you know, I can imagine that that thief getting up to heaven one day. And they're like, so why are you here? And he goes, man, I don't know. I was talking to this guy hanging next to me. He told me I could and I'm here. That's all I know. What did he do? He believed. He believed. That's all he did. Now, you've probably heard about all of these AI apps out there, the artificial intelligence stuff. I decided to check one out. And I typed in it just to see what would happen. Uh, can you give a presentation of the gospel? And even though this is a computer-generated thing, it's pulling from lots of different resources, it was one of the best presentations of the gospel I've ever seen. It hit all the major points. I thought that was great. It was actually better than what I've heard from a lot of Christians, sadly. But then I tried something. I said, can you simplify it? And it broke it down, and I simplified it more and more and more, and I finally got it down to simply say this. Believe and be saved. Believe in Jesus and be saved. That's the gospel. That's what we're preaching. That is what Paul preached when he went into the churches that he established. He didn't come in with a doctrinal statement. He didn't come in with all these extra things. He said, I, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. That's it. I preach the gospel. Believe in him and you're saved. That's what he died for. That's what Paul was martyred for. That's what the apostles were martyred for. They weren't martyred so that they can continue having revival services and continue having healing services. They died because the gospel's true. They believed it and the testimony spoke to them and that gospel is all that matters. Do we believe that we can earn our righteousness? In so many ways, we've lessened our faith to a set of moral principles that control our behavior. As long as we don't act on our thoughts, we're okay, right? As long as people think we're doing the right things, then we're in the right direction. No, not just the Pharisees. We often work really hard to keep the exterior clean while the inside is filthy. Rather, traditions of the elders work to control behaviors. The Torah of God seeks to change the heart. We too all share a fallen nature and often struggle with the sin principle within us. Just as Jesus said in this parable to the Pharisees and the tax collectors, the sinner who humbled himself went down to his home, justified rather than self-righteous, who was consumed by his pride. So what does it mean to be self-righteous? It's relenting to God based on your own performance for him rather than trusting in his grace and his mercy for salvation. Recognizing our own inclinations towards self-righteousness is critical if we wish to receive the full benefit of Jesus' grace. So look to your life. Do not take pride in your outward holiness and compare yourself to others in these areas. Are you jealous when someone younger or less spiritual is honored? Do you feel compelled to justify yourself to people to maintain your image? If so, it's time to repent of your pharisaical ways and humble yourself before Christ and ask him for the grace that will cover all of your works. So let's turn away from pride and be willing to accept that the only remedy is repentance and faith in him. We may not think that we believe that we can earn our salvation, but yet we try to put on a show on the outside and often we forget that it's grace that covered us. It's, we forget it by not associating with people who aren't like us, 
who not uh, allowing people to have beliefs that maybe we don't necessarily agree with, but it's okay because ultimately we believe in Jesus and we're saved. And here's the last thing. Do we believe that our observance of the faith makes us better? So often we tend to see ourselves as us against the world. Forgetting that before Christ found us, we were the world. Throughout Christian history and really just religious history in general, there's been a trend to make ourselves out to be better than other people. This is what the Pharisees did, and we we do this too. In the early Americas, um, when the Catholic churches were coming over and some of the Protestant churches began to experience revival, they began to experience these things and these moves of God, they began to call themselves the new lights. We're the new lights and everybody else is the old lights. We have something better than what you have. We have something more important than what you have. We're better. We're better. You're, you're the old. You need to get with the picture. This has evolved over time. I remember hearing it not too long ago, the new wineskins versus the old wineskins. You need to get with the picture. You're just being a Pharisee. You need to get over here and you need to, you, you need to experience what God's doing over here and over here and over here. You need to get with the picture. You need to get in the flow. We tend to do that. We, we put ourselves in a position where we're better. We have churches that they talk about how we, we practice spiritual gifts over here and that makes us better. We, we practice, we have moves of God all the time. We have services that are just incredible and, and that's awesome. I love that. I want to hear that. I want to hear that God is doing things, but it doesn't make you better. Prophecy, signs and wonders, they're great. But the disciples rejoiced about those things. They came to Jesus and said, you gave us authority and the demons ran. And he said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. That's what it's about. That's the gospel. The other things, yes, we need those. Those are important. Yes, in a place of spiritual maturity, we will experience those. But that is not the bread and butter of what we're doing here. That's not what we die for. And then it goes further. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 says, they came and they said, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. We drove out demons in your name. These are people who are professing Christ. These are people who are actually doing what what we're called to do. We did it. We did it in your name. It happened. We prophesied. We cast out demons. And Jesus said, depart from me. I don't even know you. Why? Because they rejoiced in the wrong things. Because they thought they were better Because God used them in certain ways. They were no different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees weren't wrong because they took a stand for the truth. They were wrong because they said, they weren't wrong because they said it has to be this way. They were wrong because they they had pride and they were self-righteous in it. Paul was still a Pharisee. In so many ways, his, his personality was still a Pharisee whenever he was an apostle because when he went into the churches, he didn't say, oh, this is great. Oh, this is awesome. I, I don't even care what's happening. I don't care what you guys are teaching. I don't care how it's going. There's just, there's movement happening. There's things happening. And you know what? I, I'm just glad that everybody's happy. 
No, that's not what Paul said. He said, this is what God gave me. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you either get with the picture or you get out. That's what he said. He looked a lot like a Pharisee in those moments. The things that we label Pharisees to be. Because he sought truth. Because he was indignant. That's not what Jesus rebuked. What Paul didn't do is he didn't say, I am so much better because I received the revelation directly from God. I am so much better than you. He didn't do that. But we hear that today, don't we? I got a download from the Holy Spirit. Awesome. Doesn't make you better. It's not a place to have self-righteousness. It's a good thing. But here's my question for you. Is the gospel message being preached? These churches where things are happening, where God's moving, amen. I hope it is real. I hope it is authentic. But here's what I will say. If the gospel isn't being preached, I don't know what spirit's in your church, but it's not the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is only activated by one thing and that's Jesus being revealed. And if the gospel's not being preached, then Jesus is not being revealed. So all the things that happen, all the supernatural things, awesome. But don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that God is using you in those ways. Rejoice in the gospel, which is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Don't become prideful and self-indulgent in what God's doing through you. If the gospel is not being preached, then the Holy Spirit is not active in your presence because the Holy Spirit will not be around any place that the gospel is not being preached. So maybe the church on the corner doesn't have the same move of God that you think they should. Maybe there isn't uh, services where they just, they don't preach, they just worship the whole time, and that's great. But is the gospel being preached? Is Jesus being proclaimed in that place? That's what we rejoice about. Not how many people fill the altars. Because people can fill the altars, but if the gospel isn't preached, then they're just standing in the front. They're not receiving anything. We preach the gospel. Jesus said, or Paul said, I preach Christ and Christ crucified everything else. I don't know. He said, I spent my whole life studying the Torah. I don't know. All I know is it pointed to Jesus in the first place. That would, that's what it's all about. So as I wrap up here tonight, here's my invitation. Here's my application. What are you adding to the gospel? What are the components that you think have to be there in order for the gospel to be true? What are the things that have to be in a church or you won't go there outside of the gospel? Because if that's the case, then you're being a Pharisee. Is your salvation based on grace or is it based on what you've done? Are you afraid that everybody around you is going to lose their salvation because they just can't quite get it right like you can? If it's not based on grace, then you're being a Pharisee. Do you carry a religious spirit? A religious spirit is not the stubborn old man who won't, uh, who won't let the new pastor do what he wants to do. That's not the religious spirit. It can be that. It can be that, but this is what a religious spirit is. I'm better than you because I've experienced something that you've never experienced. Because I'm going after the right things. Because thank God I'm not like that dead church on the corner. That's a religious spirit.
It can look like a lot of things. But just because you have the emotionalism and your services are exciting and they have the strobe lights and the smoke machines and people are prophesying here and demons are being cast out there, that doesn't mean you don't have a religious spirit if there's pride in it. If you won't step foot in a church that doesn't have those things, even though the gospel's being preached, because if they don't have that, well, they're just old lights, they're just old wineskin. No, you're being a Pharisee. Let's reshape the way we see it because the way we've been preaching it isn't right. It's not just being stubborn. It's not holding strong to the truth. It's holding strong to the right truth and it's not allowing pride to get in there. I need to end. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word and I pray that it would rest in the hearts of every person who heard it. I pray that it would eat their lunch and that it would help them to, to know that, you know, we... The moment we think we got it right is the moment we need to step back and realize we're, we're being a Pharisee. We'll never get it right. Only you can. I pray that you'd heal our hearts. I pray that you would convict us right now for the, <laughs> the way that we've divided your body over the pettiest things. Let us get back to the basics. What is the gospel? It's believing in you and being saved. Everything else. If we add to it, as Paul said, let us be accursed. We don't need to add anything to what you brought. We believe for the things that you do. We believe they would happen in this church. We believe that we'd see signs and wonders and miracles and demons cast out. We believe in those things, not so that we can say, look at us, look at Bethel. But so we can say, look at Jesus. And more importantly, I pray that you would move in people's hearts, even if we don't see it on the outside. That's what's important. I pray that you'd be with us as we go out tonight and that this would stick with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. just want to speak